Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, finance and economics editor at The Economist. And this is Money Talks. Later in the program, Snap, the firm behind the Snapchat app, has gone public via an IPO. But is it likely to succeed as a public company? This was the big chance for public investors to get in, and it traded up significantly on its first day. And we asked trade expert Chad Bowne if there's any truth to President Trump's accusation that China hasn't been playing by the trade rules. China is a little bit different as well in that China also has the state or the government heavily involved in in certain types of industries. But to start, earlier this week it was confirmed that PSA, the owner of Peugeot and Citroën, has agreed to buy General Motors' European operations for $2.3 billion, taking in GM's Opel and Vauxhall operations. GM Europe's not made a profit since 1999, but the new owners are promising to get the business back in the black once again. Adam Roberts, our European business and finance correspondent, joins me from Paris. Adam, on the face of it, getting rid of a loss-making unit looks pretty good business for General Motors. Have they got a good deal? Yes. Some will say that um, getting out of Europe is the best thing that General Motors could have possibly done. There's been years and years of making losses in Europe. There had been this idea that uh, you had to be big to have any chance of of competing with the with the really big car companies, the Volkswagens and so on of the world. But actually, for General Motors, it hasn't done well in Europe. It struggled, if you remember, several years back with Saab, and, and that ended in in misery. Uh, it had previously tried to to sell out of Opel or to sell part of Opel at least back in two thousand and nine. That didn't go well, and now it's finally found a way out. So I think. On balance, getting smaller but getting out of Europe is probably a good thing for General Motors, allowing it to focus on the American market, which is much more robust and and growing faster, and the challenges that car companies everywhere are going to face now, which is autonomous driving and uh, the new forms of electric and other cars that they'll have to develop. So I think in, in many ways this is good news for GM. Which raises the corresponding question, I guess, is... How do, how are PSA going to turn it round? Have they made clear? Obviously, here in Britain, a lot of the coverage has been speculation about job losses. Yeah, so the challenge for PSA is to develop some of the success they've already had in the past couple of years. Uh, they're now suddenly jumping up to be Europe's second largest car maker, but they're still very much a European car company. They don't have a lot of exposure to to big markets in other parts of the world. They have a lot of production sites, as you say, in, in Britain, in Germany, in France, and Europe's market is probably coming to a peak. And so the challenge for PSA is to somehow merge these companies, to mix the, the two cultures of a German and a, and a French company plus the British operations, and cut costs and somehow compete with these with these other car companies like Volkswagen that are, are really pushing on fast to develop new sorts of models and uh, methods of, of powering their cars. 
in Carlos Taveras, the, the um, chief executive of, of PSA, they have someone with a remarkable record in the last couple of years of improving Peugeot's performance. But that's really, you know, doesn't really tell you a lot about what they can achieve in the next two or three years in this period of uncertainty. You mentioned the British operations and talking to Mr Tavares, he's quoted in the press here as saying a hard Brexit would be, in his words, a nice opportunity in terms of business. Do you understand how, what he means by that? I think that businessmen are probably obliged to find a positive outlook on almost anything that comes along and try to find some way for a silver lining to a cloud. But I can't see that hard Brexit will be in any way an opportunity for his company. Uh, yes, he needs to find a way to have exposure to the British market. PSA didn't have much of that. And so in getting hold of Vauxhall, he's now obtained a way to have exposure in Britain. But in terms of the supply chains that cross back and forth across the English Channel and between the countries of Europe, hard Brexit will only make things more difficult. It'll add more currency uncertainty, more fears of tariffs and so on. So I don't really see that he's talking a lot of sense when he sees hard Brexit as an opportunity. I think he's just trying to, to sound positive. My thanks to The Economist's European business and finance correspondent, Adam Roberts. So what do you think? Are General Motors selling a liability, or is PSA getting a good deal? Do let us know. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. Next, this past week has seen Snap, the company behind the hugely popular Snapchat app, go public. It's the largest initial public offering, or IPO, since the one by China's Alibaba in 2014. This may suggest a reversal of a trend of tech firms staying private for as long as possible, including the so-called unicorns, worth more than a billion dollars. But does the Snap offering mark a new trend, or is it a one-off? Alexander Suich, our US technology editor, joins me from San Francisco. Alexander, since the IPO, we've seen Snap's shares go up and down quite a bit. What's been going on? So there was a lot of enthusiasm about Snap coming public. It's been private for quite a while, and so only sophisticated investors, venture capitalists, um, and others were able to write checks and invest in Snapchat. This is its public debut, and there haven't been very many initial public offerings of consumer internet companies at all. So this was the big chance for public investors to get in, and it traded up significantly on its first day. There has since been a little bit of skepticism about whether it would be able to keep up with the very high expectations about the company. They make, as you mentioned, Snapchat, the app, which is very famous for its disappearing messages and is extremely popular, but already they have about a 50% penetration among their core total addressable market in the U.S., which is 13 to 34-year-olds. And so the concern, which is going to plague Snap for the considerable future, is can they grow beyond their audience as it exists today? And I think there are some expectations that Snap is following Facebook and could attract a huge market and audience. And I think that that is hugely optimistic. Um, And so you're going to see its share price toggle back and forth between the optimists who say that greater times are ahead and the pessimists who say this is a niche social media property. And I suppose the optimists are, are betting that it's 
the, the people who are using it now are not going to stop using it when they turn 34, 35. Exactly. And the, they're betting that as more advertising dollars move online, that Snap is going to be a major beneficiary of that. Uh, the the real question is, they, they really pioneered this mobile video for teens. So people are consuming a ton of amateur content on their mobile phones. Um, you know, YouTube is another site that's done a great job at it. But the question is whether Facebook and others will be able to learn from what Snapchat has done so successfully and then just copy it. And that's a really big concern. And do you think this is a one-off or, or is Snap representative of a type of tech company going to go public this year? Many people will be looking to the performance of Snap to see kind of whether public market investors are willing to tolerate losses because although Snapchat has grown extremely quickly, it's also losing a lot of money and there's there's no sign of profitability ahead. Uh, they're very unique in both their size and so we're not I don't think going to see what some annoyingly perhaps called decacorns so the unicorns that are worth over 10 billion dollars 20 billion dollars um which of which snapchat is one I don't think we're likely to see another one come down the IPO pipeline this year so ones that are being watched are Airbnb which has stayed private for a long time um and is trying to disrupt the hotel business Business, Uber, the ride-sharing company, Palantir, which uses software to detect threats abroad and work with companies to recognize patterns. These are all companies that have stayed private for a very long time, all worth over $10 billion. We don't really have any visibility about whether they're going to go public, but I'd be surprised if they go public in 2017. The companies we are going to see go public this year are... Uh, more boring, less well-known companies. So enterprise software companies, companies that sell software to other businesses that have created or found a real niche, whether it's kind of unifying different software applications or providing very sector-specific software. So, you know, threat detection, security and identity, et cetera. Those are, which are potentially worth, you know, one, two billion dollars on the public market, we're going to see those go public this year. And I think that's going to be, while they're less high profile than a snap, I think that they're more representative of the types of startups that have been growing up in Silicon Valley, and then whether or not they'll provide exits and perform well in the public markets will be very consequential for the venture capitalists and others who have invested in these startups in the early days and, of course, the management team. So I think those are the ones to watch. And next week, we're likely to see a company called MuleSoft, which is an enterprise software company, go public. Again, they're probably more representative than a Snap is. Alexandra Suich, The Economist US technology editor, thank you very much. Finally, Might President Trump's accusation that China hasn't been playing by the trade rules have a point? International trade expert Chad Bowne, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington, is well-versed in the relationship between the president and China. He's been talking with our economics and trade correspondent, Sumeya Keynes. Donald Trump has come into office promising to crack down on trade cheaters. Is this anything new? No, not really, in many respects. You know, all politicians come into office 
telling their domestic industries that they're going to protect them from from injurious foreign competition. So there's definitely an, a certain element to what Donald Trump has been promising that, that we've heard before. He's talked about people cheating the rules of global trade. Is it possible that some of this cheating is actually just, you know, foreign competition hurts? Yeah, th- I think that's exactly right. And so the most obvious example of cheating that we see being addressed through trade policy is through laws relating to policies called anti-dumping or countervailing duties. And those types of laws, and anti-dumping in particular, you can impose import restrictions when companies are engaging in behavior that in domestic markets would be just normal profit-maximizing behavior. They could be engaging in price discrimination, just charging two different prices in two different markets, or perhaps in the short run, selling beneath their costs, which you know may make sense in certain industries like steel, like chemicals. The same kinds of things that you, you know, there's no punishment for in the domestic context, all of a sudden when goods cross borders, that's called cheating. That's called dumping and you see import restrictions being used frequently. The main recipient of Donald Trump's anger seems to be China. Why is that? To some extent, China may be doing some of this kind of activity, but China is a little bit different as well in that China also has the state or the government heavily involved in, in certain types of industries. And so it's it's more than just firms engaging in this kind of activity. It's also the state being involved, uh, potentially subsidizing it directly, whether we're talking about steel or, or aluminum, or the Chinese government being involved in certain sectors like banking and finance or key input industries that may end up working as implicit subsidies in lots of downstream industries. China is just a much bigger actor. It does some of the things that all other countries do, but it does some things that are particularly unique as well. Donald Trump is angry that cheap imports from China and and generally overseas have been killing American jobs. Is that form of trade cheating a problem? That story, I think, is certainly the narrative that he has put forward. But I think that, you know, that, that in and of itself is not necessarily cheating. It's just the recognition that China, as a major economy, became heavily involved in globalization over the last 20 or so years. And during that time period, a lot of industries that had historically been relatively low-skilled, low-wage industries in the United States and in other countries as well, all of a sudden faced new competition from China, and they left and ceded their market space to China. Donald Trump, with his team of trade advisors and and people as they, they come into their departments, they're going to be looking for ways to crack down on dumping people selling products into America for what they see as below cost in this unfair way. And the standard forum that those disputes would be settled would be the World Trade Organization. So are we going to see a huge increase in activity there? There's two separate types. So the the dumping cases or these anti-subsidy cases, the countervailing duty cases, those don't actually need to go to the WTO. Those the United States could handle domestically under its own laws. The WTO permits the United States to have these laws to stop the imports from coming in. But if a country complains that this is unfair, then the dispute will be taken to the WTO. That's right. And so the United States has been doing this for years. Um, But China has started to complain, uh, and they've started to challenge the U.S.'s ability to use these kinds of import restrictions at the WTO. Uh, They filed this this big case about their treatment as a non-market economy back in December, and this is going to be a very, very large WTO case that takes place over the next couple of years. 
So that was before even Donald Trump came into office, right? There, are the, there have been these disputes going on already. That's right. This is just a continuation, really, of the status quo. Now, it's interesting to note that even before he came into office, uh, even before he was president, like a number of different areas, he was already weighing in on things. Uh, and so he had stated back in December that China is not a market economy, even though that wasn't his responsibility yet. But he's made his feelings known about that particular issue, yeah. So is China a market economy? I think that's the really hard question, and ultimately the WTO will make its decision. I think in many respects, when we look at China, we would say probably not yet. At least it's not a market economy that the United States, Western Europe, Japan, the the other market-oriented economies of the world recognize. The Chinese government, the Chinese state, the Chinese Communist Party is just involved in certain sectors, and they act in ways that are very different from what we're used to. And that imposes some, some tensions on the, on the system to be able to deal with that. But I think what we're hoping in terms of the international community is that the United States, European Union, and China actually sit down and negotiate over what this would mean. This is really too big an issue for some judges in Geneva to be deciding uh, for the WTO system. Chad Baum, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. My thanks to Chad Baum from the Institute for International Economics in Washington, who is speaking with our economics and trade correspondent, Samaya Keynes. And that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. And do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist. 